Baskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Robbie Bent. Robbie is the co-founder and CEO of Othership. Othership is a platform that includes a physical space and a mobile app to effect positive change and address the problem of loneliness and the detrimental effects it has on our individual and collective health. They combine a transformational breathwork app and physical spaces built around sauna and ice bath classes. In this episode, we discuss a variety of things, including not optimizing for money early in your career, how to build community, designing physical spaces for other ship, expanding to different markets, including New York and beyond, and what it was like raising a $10 million Series A for Othership. Please enjoy my conversation with Robbie Bent. Robbie, so you went to Ivy, really fantastic school, and you jumped kind of into the finance world after university. Why did you initially start there? Was that some kind of career plan? Was that something you just wanted to do since you were younger? Why did you start into finance? It's so hard to make a decision when you're like, 18, 19, you know, I, I, I didn't even really know what business was. I knew my dad was a businessman. And so I looked at like, what was the best business school in Canada? And he was, whether it is or not, I had really good marketing. And so I just set it as a challenge to get pre-accepted and beat. And so I went there. Uh, I never thought about like, what do I want to do on a day-to-day -day basis? What's exciting for me? And, and I'd be, you know, the best paying jobs out of school was like I banking, which I thought was internet. I didn't even know what investment banking actually was, but I, oh, that's the best job. You make the most money. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And so I read all the finance books. I got a summer internship. I you know, went into investment banking. And I hate, hate it. It's a, it's a very challenging job, challenging environment. I think skill set learned is pretty soft. And so... Also at the time, you know, in 2006, when I graduated, there weren't many startups. It wasn't clear that, you know, you could build your own business. The tools weren't there. It wasn't, there weren't archetypes of like, you know, Facebook and, and these other things and like Combinator. And so, um, yeah, fine. it was like kind of, Hey, you finance or marketing or accounting. And, and that's all I knew. So I chose finance it was, uh, it was a mistake, I think. 
like that. You had a founder journey there with like a few different things with Romley, an energy company. What was the catalyst behind becoming a founder? Like you're saying you kind of that dislike to like investment banking and finance there. Was this, did you have friends that had founded stuff and you're like, hey, maybe I should do something too? Did you have like a, an idea in your head and you're like, I should just try this out? How did that happen? But first, it was a desire to make money. And so, you know, very competitive, wanted to be rich. And I kind of drove a lot of my early decisions, which again is why it's so difficult to make a decision when you're 18, 19. So, you know, that was so important, like proving to friends, to parents that I'm successful. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to do finance. The hedge fund, I worked in an investment bank, then a hedge fund, the hedge fund I worked at imploded in the credit crisis. And so it was almost impossible to get a job finance at the time and i came in one day and they're like hey you know this fund is no more and was like, okay uh, that was a pretty crazy experience and so i was like okay well you know what i can i can do a startup like this seems easy and this seems like a faster way to make money you know and, and so um i had a co-founder and i thought yeah this just seems easy an easy way to make money and didn't really know too much about it and thought it was a really good opportunity we built the products kind of like Google Fi, so it was uh, allowed you to have global um, access to the telecom when traveling. So the idea was that you, you know, when you roam, you roam like home. I actually that slogan and sold it to Rogers. Uh, it was the last thing we sold out of bankruptcy. Uh, <laughs> we didn't know it was Rogers at the time buying it, and so only sold it for like thirty thousand dollars. But um, we tried to build this um, roaming chain and thought like wow, this is an opportunity to make a lot of money. And so I spent four years doing that and learned that, wow, this is significantly harder than I expect. And when you're trying to do something for money in a short period of time, your chances of success are basically zero. There's so many people competing on that access. We can talk a bit about that, but extending your access to a 10-year period or doing something that you want to do as you care about solving the problem gives you such an advantage, which is something I learned over time. But at that time, I was like, oh, this is... You know, roaming prices are a thousand dollars a trip, and we can serve this for fifty dollars. Like, yeah, we're gonna make a fortune. Not realizing that, you know, obviously roaming prices would compress. Um, so that business ended up failing after four years. We spent twenty-five million dollars to build the system. I had no idea about like lean startup, how to validate your product had to be for everybody, consumers, businesses, travelers to every country with every type of phone. So we spent so much money building this universal solution. It wasn't good enough for any specific use case. Whereas if we just targeted, you know, knowing what I know now would have been like, let's just focus on the software on the SIM card. Let's rent everything else. Let's focus on Toronto-based travelers with iPhones going to the UK and let's see if we can sell them those customers. And, and like, you know, when you're starting out, you don't, you don't know anything. And so... Um, especially at that time in 2010 in Toronto, like there was no tech hardware community and I didn't ask for help. I thought I could do everything on my own and I, I just didn't know what I was doing. So, um, probably the best learning experience of my career though, where I compare that and being in, you know, work for four years where I learned a bit of financial acumen and it is helpful to understand, you know, uh, how to read a balance sheet and PL and cash flow and like, has helped prepare me for raising money in a really good way. So that was actually really super beneficial. But what I learned the next four years at startup is like unparalleled in terms of my entire career was best learning points for sure. You talked about like 
having a strong advantage there when you're extremely passionate about something and you're willing to work on it for 10 years. Is that othership for you? And also, did you were you thinking about different ideas? Like, how did you determine, hey, I'm truly passionate about this. I want to work on this for 10 years. Now you have that advantage with what you're working on. How did you kind of go through that thought process and decide, hey, this is what I'm going to do? I'll give a few examples. So, so I, you know, first business, that running business failed and I was like distressed. You know, I had $60 in my bank account. I moved out of my apartment. I had all my belongings in the back of this old car, I moved back in my parents' basement. And then I was kind of forced to continue doing startups because I didn't have a skill set. It's just like, hey, what? Well, I'm the co-founder of this company. Like, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a product designer. Uh, you know, I don't really raise money professionally. Like, what is my skill? I'm like a generalist in all these random things. I can't like build something from scratch myself. So I felt really down. I felt like, wow, I don't know what to do or if I could even get a job. Like I remember applying for a job at the GM at Uber and like, oh, I'm never going to get this. And so dejected. And I have these nightmares of like in an investment bank, people yelling at me. And so you know, I was really struggling. I got into drugs and, and alcohol. And so, uh, you know, I ended up moving to Israel and like, long story short, cleaned up my life and joined the Ethereum Foundation, moved to San Francisco. And the whole guiding principle there was instead of trying to make money was be around people. So be around where there's a lot of energy, very smart people. And, you know, I ended up living in Silicon Valley and going to meetups every night and working for Ethereum like very, very early on and leading the ecosystem growth for four years and got paid in ETH and that just exploded. And so all of a sudden I was successful and gained my confidence. I was like, wow, I can be around these people. And it was, again, another really good learning experience in a high optionality environment. Why I'm telling that story is because after four years, it's sort of like the pinnacle of that career. I decided to switch again to what I'm doing now. And so when you're building in a single industry, there's all kinds of like long-term compounding effects in terms of like your network, your knowledge base, uh, the investors you meet, so it becomes easier over time. And so if you are doing something you're passionate about for a long period of time, the benefits will compound. Whereas if you're always switching every two years to something new, it makes it difficult to like really understand the problems in that vertical and the people who are, who are good to help you. And so why I switched though, I, I loved crypto, but I was really interested in the people and the mission, but I still couldn't build products. So I was working on like, you know, what's basically a developer platform and like super intense solidity code. And so I started to learn how to do that. And it was, it was just not my natural state of what I'm good at. And because I'm sober, I, I love houses. And so I've been going instead of bars for like 10 years to sauna and ice baths. It was like one of our first dates with my wife was to an house that we found through listening to a biohacker podcast. And we built uh, an ice bath in my backyard when we moved to Toronto. And we just really leaned into that. And so it was something that we used to build our community here to have a healthy community because I was in the drugs and alcohol. I wanted to, you know, move back to Toronto from San Francisco. I wanted to be around healthy people. And so it was just something like, you know, you scratch your own itch, which is oftentimes like a good way to find something to work on, right? Because it's something you're doing like a side project on the weekend because you're passionate. And so myself and our five co-founders who are best friends would have ice baths every night in the neighborhood. We then built, uh, converted my garage into like a mini sauna ice bath. And that grew into a thousand person community. This is like before, you know, Wim Hof is super popular and ice baths are on Instagram. It was just something fun that we did. And... I found myself on weekends just like designing 
programming, you know, a couple's idea or like a, a long sweat in the dark or releasing anger. And I would spend like 12 hours on designing this class and picking and thinking about the language and researching connection exercises and for no monetary purpose. You know, the whole point of this was just kind of for fun. And over New Year's one day, like 15 people messaged me like, hey man, this place, you know, these are the new friends I've made that are in Toronto. I knew nobody before I came or you know, it saved my life during COVID. It's like the only place I could go. And nobody had really ever sent those type of messages. And so I just decided, hey, this is like something we want to test. And so we signed a lease during COVID, which took a lot of guides. You know, like people with on mass groups on it together. Um, but we got a good good rate. And because of that, it was during COVID. Then we opened right as lockdowns ended. And we were testing two things. One um, that people would socialize in a sauna environment at night, bar, and then two that people would work on emotional health together and do classes on you know, loving kindness and acceptance and awakening and anger release, all kinds. Of and the idea was like, could we create something that helped people deal with stress uh, and improve personal growth and deal with burnout uh, for the mainstream, not the traditional people who have been interested in wellness. And so when that happened, just like it was obvious I wanted to do this because of how fun it was and how much time I personally spent um, using these products. So I think when you're looking, it's like, what is the thing I'm doing on the side that is captivating me? And like, I always believe in starting in side projects. Like for us, Othership didn't seem like business. It was an ice bath in the backyard. And, you know, there wasn't the idea that, hey, you programming and classes that came from actually testing and we're the first people in the world to ever do like classes in the environment we developed a hundred hour teacher training program and that is a secret um you know it's almost like doing therapy in the sauna in some ways and so that was a secret we stumbled on through testing so again goes back to like if you have a long time horizon and you're testing usually like an obvious idea is impossible to find because somebody who's capitalized will have already done it or working on it it's very hard and, and good ideas come from like testing something small and then like, you know, you hear this term pivot is like, you see some other immersion here and capitalize. So I think, you know, the learnings I've had are don't optimize for money early on in your career. It's very, very difficult unless you're choosing a career like investment banking and you're down to go like 20 years deep, which is for me, like a major, major life sacrifice. Um, but for some people it's worth it and, you know, so don't optimize for money, optimize to be around like smart people, optimize to be around like interesting problems. And it doesn't have to be something that's in your daily life. Cold plunge. I love cold plunge. It could be something that you're just interested in a problem that you want to solve. I found if you, if you choose those two things, you're likely to be very about your career and like create and build something awesome. So like long time hires and smart people, interesting problem that mix. Like if I was going back in university again, I have a one-year-old son and university, I'm going to try it, but who knows what he'll do. But um, that is the mix I would try him thinking about is like, what is a long-term problem I'm passionate about for five years plus? Who are like smart people I'd be around to like work on this with? I'm, I'm like, yeah, years plus is the long time horizon. So that's kind of my the framework I've seen work now, you know, hanging out with 
probably thousands of entrepreneurs across like many different spaces. I'm curious your thoughts on building community. It sounds like the experience that you were developing and like your focus on people, you just had that strong unlock where the community just kind of naturally built itself. But I'm cur- curious on your thoughts of like, what's a great way to start a community? What's a great way to maintain a community as well as it's scaling to a very large number? Community is just kind of a buzzword nowadays. I find everyone's trying to do that. But like, how do you, how have you really successfully done that with Othership and e- even before other? You need to look for passion, a topic that people have like an emotional energy around. And so like, you know, examples, Bitcoin, you know, ecstatic dance, like Daybreaker, uh, longevity, you know, this Brian Johnson character, people who don't know is out there, deep print diet, and he's just put out 2,500 joy and like, been crazy about the specific diet because his stated goal is to live, uh, you know, kind of forever. Um, it's just like topics that have motion around them. Two is and where there's energy. If there's no energy in the topic and people don't get excited about it, you know, like what I was thinking the other day was a pizza conference and people are wearing, you know, pizza sweaters and they're just like, oh my God, in my life, I just like, I just love it. And like trying different pizzas like brings me joy. And so there needs to be some type of activity slash topic where there is a lot of energy. And you know, so, so a lot of times that might be around like learning something. So like learning a skill. So a really awesome community to look at is um, Lenny's Slack. It's Lenny Richisky's podcast on like product development. So it's like product developers on tech. And so it's a podcast and a Slack. So I'm trying to up-level their career. Um, a lot of times you see it money. It's usually like learning something or making money, you know, so crypto was massive when joining these discords were exploding. So I think the first thing is like, there needs to be some kind of energy around a problem. And then you need to have some type of learning for people to get together around. And then it needs to be recurrent. So like sports teams are amazing community. There's a fantasy league every season competing. There's a reason to continue to check in. And the good ideas for communities are usually like, what's what WhatsApp groups are you in? What, are you in? What magazines do you follow? What Reddit threads are big ones, you know, could usually be unbundled into a community. Um, and then what kind of experiences are you providing? So is it learning? Is it like in-person connection? Is it networking? Uh, but yeah, you can say like, it's, it's difficult, um, to build and need like, there needs to be an underlying reason. You can't just build from nothing. Um, but all those examples gave are like pretty solid, um, Makes to kind of like build your own something. Also curious about other ship from a physical space. I'm not saying a software business is easier, but you know, if you launch something and maybe it's not perfect, you can kind of iterate it and change it and come back. When you were doing other ship with that first physical space, how did you really kind of, you know, you, you're talking about COVID, finding that good lease, but how did you think about designing the physical space? Like how big should it be? Like how many people are we expecting to come through here? How did you think through all those things from kind of day zero, day one with like a physical space? Yeah, it's super hard. And like, luckily we've been at this now for like five years. And so the first one was a nice bath in the backyard, right? It's as easy as you can get. And the next one was a garage space with no permit. Um, again, more of a test. And it was like, oh, well, I want this for myself and I'll use my own garage space all the time. So it was again for fun. Then through that, we saw like what makes the experience magic. How do you actually create in a group of six, what do people want to come in and do? And this is why our experience isn't a spa. It's not like some type of 
recovery center. We never use those terms because we know our customers so well. We've done over a hundred thousand visits and I've like, I did most of them, you know, myself from the start along with my co-founders. And so, um, how we think about design is really understanding our customer. How long do they want to be in there? What should the temperature of the sauna be? What should the temperature of the cold plunge? What type of music should be playing? What type of smells? How do they get changed? Even our, our change room in our space in Toronto was co-ed and we saw that work based on how people were changing in the garage. Then, so, so it's, it's like really understanding your customer and then understanding the field. So I probably went to 70 spas uh, across, you know, 20 countries. And so really understood like what Athas experience was and what we wanted to build. Um, then, you know, the first one is obviously still an MVP. It was about 3000 square feet. It was too small. Um, so it's always overcrowded. There's problems with it. But like before opening that one, we did uh, a 15 star experience. It's an experience that Brian Chesky recommends on uh, a Masters of Scale podcast. And it's just like, if you had no budgetary constraints, what is the best possible experience to build? And for Airbnb, the example is like, you fly in on a private jet, the entire town is waiting for you. You ride an elephant to your house while the whole town like sings a song and cheering you on. And so it's like, you try to think of like, how good can we possibly make this? And it starts to unlock different ideas. So we do that exercise every time we're opening like a new studio. And then we just spend, you know, thousands and thousands of hours in the space doing hundreds of classes and just watching. And then like collecting feedback from customers, interviewing them, doing the classes yourself. And every time it's, you know, from Adelaide to Yorkville, which we just launched massive upgrade, this is double the size, all kinds of changes to like the sound system, the lighting system, the classes, ice baths are like different dimensions or like perfect dimensions for a body to go in. Um, you know, the check-in process has changed. The social events have changed. And so it's, it's just iterative. And so I think if you're designing your first anything, like something they understand is just not perfect. It's impossible. And like for any process, that's the same. So if you're like even trying to implement something at work, speed is better than perfect every time because you just don't know. Like you, a lot of mistakes people make, especially when they work at big companies, everything's about process. You build this whole plan. We need to approve. We need to do it. And to make something perfect, that's just not how you improve there's no like eureka moment of like this is going to work because there's too many variables so things improve by like, very small incremental tests with reality and so the you know if you're building something from scratch go and look at you know what's out there to get a sense of what might be working and like build the first one and then like talk to your customers watch and iterate but it takes i think five to ten locations to get something perfect so it's like how do i ensure that i and profitable will I get to perfect, but it's a long road. And that's why it's like, if you don't want to do this for five or 10 years, if you're competing against me, who has done 5,000 hours and has done that thousand customer interviews and has been to hundreds of classes and like cares about like, what is the smell in the lobby? And like, what is this, the song play at like this time of day? And so I think like also like attention to detail for any product is key. So there's a lot wrapped up in there, but that, uh, how I think about building products. Is there any kind of brands that you you kind of idolize in that space? Like, I used to go to Equinox when I lived in Vancouver, and I just loved the physical experience, the programming, the people that were there. They had a really good digital experience as well that kept you kind of activated as well. Did you look at brands kind of like that? I know that's kind of more fitness. I don't know where you would kind of put Othership 
but was there brands that you were looking at? You're like, I really kind of idolize this experience and I'd like to, to bring that into other ship. Airbnb is a brand like Brian Chesky is just on three that I think is incredible. And so I've listened to, you know, every podcast he's, he's been on. I really follow this methodology of don't always trust that, like trust your guy. And Steve Jobs had this as well. It's like, you know, another thing people do in big companies, oh, let's do a customer survey and like figure out how to build a new product. And, and like, no, like you need to have taste and you need to go and do your own product and like understand why it's going to be great. It's a mix of like, Interview customer feedback to understand their problems, but not to find the solutions. So I idolize, um, you know, Brian Chesky or Airbnb, uh, absolutely. Uh, Steve Jobs is, is another, and like what I did at Apple, so I've read like his books. Um, in terms of product, though, I, I don't really find there's many gyms that have the hospitality experience that I think is excellent. And so for me, like excellent hospitality is at restaurants best, best, best restaurants. And so Danny Meyer is a hero of setting the table and Will Gadara from, Ele I think 11 Madison Park is one of like the most interesting stories. It's a, it was a middling restaurant in New York turned the best restaurant in the world over a period of 10 years. And like the story of how they create hospitality is something. So for me, I'm really inspired by different immersive art experiences. An example is Team Lab in Tokyo. Incredible immersive art experience hospitality based experiences like the restaurants which you mentioned and then retreats so I've done a number of these like state shifting experiences i mentioned daybreaker which is kind of dance party uh 10-day awesome meditation retreat other big day for 10 days i've done a number of psychedelic medicine retreats so the blend of like what is happening in almost this religious style um, state shifting experiences with no phone for 10 days plus hospitality plus immersive art um, so i have looked at all of those and then some of the uh bathhouse establishments in europe that have been around for a long time so those are sort of the brands i admire and the experiences i look uh, how do you think about it from a customer journey like so let's say someone's maybe done a hundred sessions and someone's doing their first session, but they're in the same class. How do you really kind of think about that experience of like, you know, someone can continuously go and get a fantastic experience and up-level themselves, but a first-time person isn't like maybe intimidated by that kind of experience? I think there should always be a little bit of intimidation and discomfort. And I think when something is available to everybody, it's really for nobody. And so at other ships, you know, our marketing is quite intense and it's very clear that like, this isn't bathhouse, it's a space for transformation. And so we are marketing to people who want to come and care about personal growth and relief from stress. But Hey, this is a space where there's classes around emotions and we're like very clear about that. And also, I mean, it's a place where there's discomfort. So the sun is quite hot, you know, it's 188 to 196 and the cold baths we've built custom, they're the coldest commercial ice bath in the world and you know they're zero to three degrees and that didn't exist in the market um when we open people will say hey i'm, I'm afraid and, you know like, that's scary and it's kind of well that's the experience is <laughs> pushing yourself through discomfort so i think you need to really as a brand take a stand for like what you believe in and what your core values are and for us we have one called cellular commitment which is like yeah like life is sometimes challenging you need to push through we also have the 
and belief of inspiring awe, which is like, wow, these experiences should make you feel like a child. And we have a belief in both building belonging. And that is that everybody, um, these experiences are collective. So we're not like on your own in a, in a spa. They're really like experiences. And so we think that those three core values can apply to first timer or, uh, you know, power journeyers. So power journeyers coming a lot knows they're getting the best design, hottest sauna, coldest ice bath with guides that have trained for a hundred hours and classes that have taken thousands of hours um, to create. So you're going to get the best class experience in the world. And then for first timers, you know, with that hospitality quotient, you know, our front desk, right, we call them stewards, are like trained to handle everything as an invitation. So even though that's difficult, if you just want to put a hand in, totally awesome. We have no times. So there's no four minutes, there's no six minutes, there's no competition. If we see that behavior, we'll actually discourage it. Say, hey, do two back-to-back plunges, get in, get out. You know, it's not about your time at all. So everything is an invitation. There are first-timer bracelets that we have people wear. There's a first-timer talk after the sauna. So there's a ton of effort into um, creating a super safe container for the first-timer. Also not diluting the experience. So um, somebody who's come a hundred times is still like... You mentioned a second location in Toronto, and now you're launching in New York as well. And as you're doing multiple locations now, you know, I, I hear a lot of emphasis on, again the experience building that, you know, 15 star experience, you know, the, the guides having a hundred hours plus of training. Is that some way that you find that you're going to be able to scale yourself? Cause you, you yourself, that, that time is limited can only be in one location at a time. So how do you think about kind of scaling that team, maintaining that quality as now you're opening a location, in a new city and, and probably going to launch more and more locations? Yeah. So for the, from, Day one, we knew we wanted to have a big impact. We also knew we wanted to open in the U.S. So for brick and mortar business, we opened our first in February 22nd. We opened our second in November 23rd in year two, twice the size. We're opening our third in five months, and we're opening our fourth five months after that. So within three and a half years to have four like flagship locations open is uh, quite rapid growth uh, for brick and mortar company, especially you know, the bills are extremely good. And so we knew like, hey, we want, this does not exist. We've created it from scratch. We want to open it everywhere. And we want to maintain our quality. So, you know, we have 700 reviews at Adelaide, 4.9 star rating, 360 reviews at Yorkville, five star rating. We just care so much. I'll read every review. Personally, as we knew, like, is there experience we want to maintain? And so again, have read every book on hospitality ratings. And we're like, to do this, we're going to need an amazing training program. And so we spent with only one studio last summer, a few hundred hours creating uh, this, a training program. And it's as good as, you know, a yoga certification where people pay five grand. And so there's building belonging events, there's online videos, there's in-person trainings, there's all kinds of stuff to imbue our, not only what you need to learn to do a shift, but to imbue culture as well. And so that exists for our guides, for our stewards, for our deckhands, for our entire team. And we're just obsessed with training our employees, ensuring we'll match the values. And that's how we're going to scale. It still limits how fast you can scale. So, you know, in New Yorkville, we were there uh, in, in New York or moving to New York. And we'll be there. I know our co-founders are all moving there. We'll be there for the launch and six after to ensure the values that persist. But so you can kind of, I think, open, you know, we'll have four at the end of next year and then we'll have enough in place. Another four, then we'll have enough in place. Eight. And so 
it limits how fast you can go, but I think what's more important than speed is just like you know exactly the experience. Okay. You talked about the buildouts being quite expensive there. I guess what are ways that you're looking to finance the business? Like obviously like revenue coming in. Are you looking to raise money? If so, what type of people are you looking to raise money for since it's a it's a unique space, right? You have that digital component, you have that physical space. Uh, you know, is it fitness? Is it is it lifestyle? Is it, you know, what whatever that may be? How do you think about that from a capitalizing the business? Yes, we raised a ten million dollar series A last year. And it was primarily from angels and uh, a venture investor. I think now the business, once we launch the two units in New York, will have scaled enough that it becomes more of a cash flow value private equity type asset. So I'm assuming the next investor will be a, a private equity style investor. There's also some ways we're exploring uh, financing. So uh, debt capital uh, using the BDC, the BDC has been quite exciting especially for Canadians expanding in the U.S. Uh, but again, to access that, you need like a number of years of profitable cash flow. So it's quite quite difficult on brick and mortar and you can't just do it all at once. You need to show like one unit is working. The money and takes another year and a half to build your next unit, you know, to find a lease and get it live. Then it takes another year and a half to do the next one. So we've short-circuited that by raising $10 million pretty early on. And now the question is like, how do we build the next 30? And once you get to a certain point from cash flow, you know, at 10 units, we'll be able to just build up as many as we can a year from cash flow. So it's how do we get there? And so I think that's um, considerations are private equity that invests brick and mortar, uh, private equity that invests in consumer. We also have an app, the brand is strong enough to start to sell a lot of D2C uh, e-commerce stuff. So. Body wash that's used in our space, different insides, different spells. We have a really awesome merch that we've custom designed everything. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's probably a larger uh, private equity player uh, or some type of JV on a per unit basis with real estate provider. How do you think about the location of a new other ship? Like you, you mentioned Adelaide and then you're in Yorkville. Again, I don't know exactly where it's going to be in New York and maybe the next location. But how do you think about location? Is it kind of okay, these are our types of customers. There's a lot of those people that live in this area. There's enough density here. How do you make sure it's not too close to another location where maybe it's pulling away from that, but it's you know it's not too far where you're kind of... I guess just how do you think about it from a geographic location with, with for, for other ship? Mostly opportunistic, like finding you know, a space that works in terms of ceiling heights and columns and power is quite challenging. So the first step is just Hey, this is the square footage that we have. What will it work? You know, and then we're just opportunistic until we find a, a deal. The demographic stuff, I think when you're early on, is really something to, to look at. So we'll, we'll more use analogs uh, to determine. So, you know, where, if you live in a city, you have a good sense of like what area is busy. And so we kind of, you know, we know Toronto super well, New York quite well. And so it's, it's somewhat obvious, I think. Um, if you're opening, a restaurant, same thing, you know, it's, it's kind of like talking to your broker and understanding where a good place for your brand. And that does with like what's available. What do you think are some, some tailwinds or changes? It might've been due to COVID or maybe it's just been building over the last few years that just really provide the kind of wins in the sale for other ships. Yeah. I mean, I think over like there was a report out from the Surgeon General in the U S that loneliness is, you know, an epidemic. 
and it's, it's dangerous for your health and smoking 15 cigarettes a day, which is insanity, especially if COVID has gas problem. There's another study out that people in the US on average have less than one close friend, which is again crazy. So there's a lot of trends in terms of isolationism and increased social media, increased like food delivery, everything in life is easier. And as a result, it's you're less reliant on community and more uh, isolated. And so I think it makes it, especially because you, you know, you're done with school, you're in your career, maybe you have a family, but you're in like your, your early thirties now living in a city can be quite isolating. So I think that's a major problem. Like people need connection um, more than ever. And there's not a lot of ways related to alcohol. So I think that's one is just like increase in loneliness due to the technology and the way we live, like nature. Two is a reduced interest in drinking alcohol. And there's been the rise of all these podcasts, you know, Andrew Huberman, Vasperi, Ferris. They all stop with alcohol. Now you can two drinks, you'll have like a 0% recovery score. And as you can see in real time, how impactful alcohol is. And so I think that's only the last five years. People have realized like one, how important it's just for performance, these wearable devices. Two, how badly alcohol impacts your sleep because people want to feel healthy. It's become clear, like, you know, how bad these things are for you. And so that leaves a huge gap. Okay. Well, I want to be social. I don't want to drink. What do I do? But I think there's been a big increase also in just like finding more meaning in life because people are lonely. So psychedelic medicine, meditation, breath work, all these like alternative modalities have, um, have cropped up. So I think there's a big. Uh, grouping there. And then finally, like interest in sauna and ice bath has exploded as well. Do like all the podcasters. I think there's like four or five different trends happening um, that will just kind of start and will like only grow over the next 10 years. I'd like to touch on programming a bit more deeply too. You, you mentioned, you know, just kind of like that obsession early days with programming for Othership. I guess, how do you? How do you really create an amazing experience from a programming standpoint? How do you maintain that? How do you, how do you, what kind of feedback are you looking for in different classes to improve that or tweak it? Uh, and maybe you're, you're different, you're running multiple different programs at the same time. So how do you kind of maintain that as well? We have 28 classes and we'll create new classes based on customer feedback. So it's kind of identifying like, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? And so we'll listen for problems that recur. And then choose those problems to make classes around. And then we'll just create class. Like part of it comes from when you spend so much time understanding all the elements that can be part of a class, a vocalization, a scream, you know, a different instrument, a different essential oil, music, different lighting. How do we want to make people feel a group share, connection exercise, maybe an element of fun, maybe an element of introspection. And so it's spending so much time and space doing these classes over and over and talking and collecting feedbacks and that's really everything about programming is like listening to what our customers are asking for and then designing just to solve that need and we designed to solve the need for us first so like hey if i'm struggling with anxiety what might a class look like okay this is i'm feeling anxious how do i get rid of that in this class and then we'll test it you know it takes hundreds of hours to create a class um and so i think it's really unique you know because it's not it's not like a yoga where we just hey the yoga teacher training or teaching yoga like we'll literally think of from first principles how do we reduce anxiety what might be visualizations what might be words you know what might be body-based exercises um and, and it's like a level of 
bottom in artistry of caring, like, hey, we want you to come in here and see a performance. And like, we want you to potentially cry or like have some type of emotional moving experience. So that's kind of how I think about programming is like an obsession to make something that's going to blow people's mind, blow your own mind first, where I was like, you know, like I do class three, four every single week still. And I've done classes, you know, 25 times the same class. And um, there's just an obsession of doing something that personally love, that our team loves, our customers love. And so I think it's just like first starts with the desire to like want to really create, put something out into the world that is great. And then listening to that you're trying to solve and then like focusing on that relentlessly. I'd love to jump in the quick fire round and want to know what your favorite book is. And if it's hard to pick a favorite, maybe just something you're currently reading. Like there's an author, Young Pueblo, I quite like, and he just has daily poetry. Uh, it's written from, I used to read like so many books. I, I, I still do, but I've kind of cooled on a bit on like, oh, I need to read these books and learn all this nonfiction stuff. So I primarily read poetry when I meditate once a day. It takes 30 seconds. And it's just like, wow, that was an interesting two sentences. I feel different. And then at night, I, I read primarily science fiction and fantasy. And so before bed, 15, 20 minutes of like incredible, you know, world building book and like a, a saga that I recently finished over the summer. Favorite book of the year was Red Rising. And again, it's a bit nerdy, but like love these space opera. Many stories like fiction books are incredible. And then if I'm like trying to learn, I love stories about founders. And so my favorite podcast is this um podcast called founders and it's super interesting because the guy his name is david sandra he doesn't have any guests he just reads the biography of like elon musk and then he'll summarize it in one hour so you can get all the gems from a biography and he's like 350 episodes on you know there's 10 of them on jeff bezos there's eight of them on steve jobs so if you want to i think better than you know we talked about going to business school better than any business school is would just be to spend two months listening to all 350 of those podcasts i've gotten such good ideas you know, the Trader Joe's, the um, Ritz-Carlton, the Four Seasons. Uh, I listened to them all about like, what could we implement from some of these best brick and mortar stores into our experience? And so I've learned more probably listening to the podcasts I started this year and have listened to you know, than probably anything else. And What are you most excited about in 2024 personally and professionally? I think like just, I've been trying to build into New York for two months, for two years. And I grew up in a small town outside of Toronto. And so to create something that like one was new in Toronto and Canada was like a big milestone. And now to bring that thing and to launch it in New York as like first sauna and ice bath, like wellness experience, like in the world, it's, it's so exciting for me, you know, like 39 to move to a new city with my one-year-old son and wife, my co-founders to all live in the house together. That's our plan is to live in a five bed house in Brooklyn um, to launch this thing that we've been building for like four years, 70 hours a week. It's like such a dream to have that happen at this stage of life or something that I care so much about that also like the practices changed my life. So to be on like state feels like going, you know, into like the NBA all-star game or something where it's like, okay, like how good is this good enough to be like best in the world? I think it is, but um, and then like how hard it fucking was to get it open. We had so many problems dealing with Department of Health and all the different like zoning and like contractors, construction. So to like cut the ribbon on the opening 
hand to like make it explode the same way Toronto has. I think it'll be the greatest joy of my, my life. I think I'm like most never worked so hard on something to like have seen it through in like a single moment. So um, that's happening in June. I'm just yeah, I'm like really astonished that we can wear a little crazy thing like this. How do you deal with hard times? You, you mentioned uh, a challenging period in your life. Do you do a lot of other ship classes? Uh, you mentioned meditation there. What are some things that work really well for you? I don't know, man. It's hard, you know? Like, I, I have all these practices, you know, hot, cold, and exercise, and eat healthy, and I used to meditate. I used to have, like, a three-hour morning routine, and I got busy, and now my morning routine is, like, being work. <laughs> like, you just get busy, and it's tough, and, it, and it's so scary. Like, you know, I thought in New York it was going to cost X dollars, and... It's three X dollars and we don't have enough money for a period of time. And so I need to raise more and I'm sitting there crying. Like maybe this isn't going to work. At one point we decided to lease and I didn't think the basement was going to work. And we were able to end up leasing the basement also with the double or space. But I was like, okay, I've signed this thing for 10 years, personally guaranteed. And like, it's, it's going to work. And you know, I was having, I had nightmares that like other people in new york were like you've missed your chance like haha like you're never gonna make it at like other spas and you know like it, it just i think there's uh, you've heard this before on founders podcast and others but there's like some mark Andreessen quote is entrepreneurship is like euphoria and terror and like sometimes it's so fucking scary and i've had a business fail before so i have like triggers around like scarcity and being bankrupt so how I, how I deal with it, it's like not well. And, uh, you know, I'll talk to my wife. I have a therapist I meet with once every two weeks. I have a business coach for all five of our, our founders who's an advisor. And so when there's emotional issues, we like talk with her. So I think a lot of support. But the reality is like these feelings are common. And you're going to have fear. And I think it's just letting those feelings happen. Whereas I used to be like super afraid when work. 21 days in a row and then just shut down and like that, like probably covers like, and like, there's no way I can have a profit. I can't see another, you know, like, you know, and I've happens been like once a month. And I've just gotten more used to processing those feelings. So, oh man, I'm really scared today. Okay. Why am I scared? Well, I'm scared that there's a competitor coming and like we might go bankrupt. Let's feel into that a bit instead of, okay, what does it feel like? My body feels nauseous. And that's okay, well, that's fine. Accept it. Is it likely to go bankrupt? Probably not. What's going to happen if you go bankrupt? And like, instead of like pushing away and just feeling fear and then exploding in anger, which I used to do a lot, is, oh my God, we're not going fast enough. You know, I'm like just very intense leader and like care so much about every detail. And so, um, and that's why the company's grown so fast and the product is so good. But, and you know, all our founders are, are like that mentality. Which is nice too with five co-founders because you have five people who have the co-founder energy. It's like so different than employee energy uh, a lot of times. So um, that's like a superpower in some ways. But yeah, it's, it's really just when those feelings come up, like sitting, it's not simple. What do you mean? Yeah, of course. It's just not fighting them. And like, I feel shitty for a day and I feel like it's going to fail. Like, don't try to work that day. Just, yeah, okay, well, I'm going to sit like that and I'm going to, be afraid for the day and tell my wife about it. And that's sitting with the feelings has been more impactful than any of the practices themselves. And it, what I realized, like, you just can't avoid, like, 
you know, so somebody invested with somebody said, do you want to do this for 10 more years? Can you like handle what it requires? Like imagine that you have 10 of these and you've signed 10 leases and you are personally liable for, you know, $15 million in debt and 10 leases. Can you even, can you, I'm like, Hey, you're going to have to fire X, Y, Z. Like that's hard too, you know? And, and so it's just like, okay, now I know when I've signed up that like, I've been next 365 days on 300. There's probably going to be some issue. Like we talked about with laundry where it's like unpleasant. And so it's kind of like just eating punch to the face over and over and like just feeling that and like knowing it's coming. And so that, that's something I understand before I start. I love that. And that was the last question from me, Robbie. I'd like to open up the mic to you just to chat about anything that you want to leave the listeners with. I think the one as hard as like those comments are, this is like my favorite thing to do in the world, you know, like competing at the highest level, creating things from scratch, making people feel certain ways, working with my best friends, you know, my wife's my co-founder. It's amazing. So it's like such a beautiful thing to do, especially with friends. And so if you're looking like, I don't know, personally for me, I'm not religious per se, but I find meaning, I found so much meaning from doing this and having a purpose. I just couldn't imagine, you know, in my friendship with my co-founders and with my wife from being on this mission together, I've never really experienced anything like that. And so if you're listening and you're like, you know, wanting to get inspired, I think what I said before, working on a problem you care about with people that you're inspired by, like there's just like kind of, I mean, it has their own path. For me, that's where I found the most meaning in my life is like those two things and, you know, possible to get there. Um, definitely doesn't happen in like a corporation. So it's something to think about um, and finding happiness that's been helpful for. Robbie, this has been a ton of fun. I've learned a lot and I really appreciate you coming on the the, the show. And uh, next time I'm in Toronto, I got to try out others. If you enjoyed this episode feel free to subscribe share with friends and reach out with guest suggestions make sure to follow me on twitter linkedin and subscribe to our newsletter on substack to keep up to date